electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Welcome to this CNBC special. I'm Mike Santoli. Jim Cramer is off tonight. A mixed picture on Wall Street. The Nasdaq, a bright spot as investors cheer the first crop of big tech results. Regional banks remain front and center as First Republic shares continue to get hammered tonight. We'll weigh the bull and the bear case. Plus, Meta on the move after reporting results following beats from Microsoft and Alphabet. We're talking tech's big moment. Plus, corporate stock buyback announcements are running near a record pace so far this year. Why some are betting big on buybacks. But let's start with the markets. Uh, You see the Dow Jones Industrial Average did decline again today. Uh, We were down about two-thirds of 1%. uh, Positive for much of the day. Microsoft, of course, in the Dow was a standout to the upside, but not enough uh, to keep the averages higher. S&P 500 still in pullback mode, uh, was down a little bit less thanks to that heavier tech weighting there. Uh, And the the, uh, NASDAQ, though, was the standout, did manage to close in the green. Microsoft about one-eighth of the weighting uh, in the NASDAQ 100. Do want to take a look at this very split market that we've had for some time. It's splitting along different lines. Financials down, tech up. Uh, you've had small caps down, large caps up, cyclicals down, defensive stocks up. Take a look at this chart of the XLG. That's extra large. That's the top 50 stocks in the Russell 1000 relative to micro, micro cap stocks is actually at one of the widest spreads it's been uh, for some time. As a matter of fact, micro caps uh, really uh, threatening to kind of fall through their, uh, the bottom end of their recent range. So it shows uh, a real defensive tone to this market. Also, want to make sure we mention news just out of the House, passing a bill to raise the debt ceiling limit. Now, this bill is expected to be dead on arrival in the Democrat-led Senate, but it was a step uh, that uh, Speaker McCarthy was looking to get there to have something to negotiate with uh, on the White House. And, of course, the debt ceiling deadline continues to hover over investor psychology. Let's bring in our panel now for more on this, more on the markets. Joining me is Gunjan Banerjee, lead writer for Markets Live at The Wall Street Journal and a CNBC contributor, as well as Peter Bookvar, the chief investment officer at Bleakley Financial Group, also a CNBC contributor. Hello to you both. Uh, thanks very much for joining me this evening. And Peter, uh, you know, the market clearly is noticing all these various leading indicators of an economic downturn. I mentioned the cyclical stocks have been taking a back seat here. Uh, and yet, 
it's interrupted. That whole outlook is interrupted by occasionally a decent number. Durable goods today was okay. The consumer has not fallen apart. Even housing, you see some uh, rekindled demand. So how should we think about the interplay between what we're expecting out of the economy with GDP to be reported tomorrow and the markets? I agree with what you said. It's a very muddy picture. Uh, but even within durable goods, for example, uh, you take out aircraft and the number was weaker than expected. And the weakness was one of the reasons why the Atlanta Fed cut their estimate for first quarter GDP to just above 1%. You look at the consumer, and it's very bifurcated. Consumers are spending more on non-discretionary things like food and drug and travel and entertainment, but spending much less on durable goods. You look at manufacturing, we've seen uh, a good New York number, but then Philly, Dallas, Richmond, uh, all weaker than expected. Uh, also some weaker services numbers out of Dallas and Philly. Uh, housing, yeah, home building is actually hanging in there because of the lack of existing homes for sale. But the overall pace of transactions, which in itself leads to a lot of economic activity, is still down dramatically. So we have a, let's call it sub 2%, if the estimates are right, if Atlanta Fed is right, sub 2% GDP uh, type of number at this point. What keeps us from kind of muddling around that level uh, for a little while, Peter? Well, the way that I look at the economy this year, it's going to be two parts. And I think what split it in half was the Silicon Valley bank collapse and what that's going to mean for bank lending. So you had an economy in January, in February, and the first couple of weeks in March, that's going to say one thing. I want to hear what's happened since mid-March and into April, because I think that there is a, uh, an obvious slowdown that's going to come after uh, what went on with those banks and what it's going to mean for bank lending in general. So that's not necessarily captured in Q1 GDP. We're, not, we're going to have to wait till Q2 GDP to really start feeling the impact and seeing the result of that. And Gunjan, um, obviously the market uh, has certainly incorporated some of this into the worldview. You see regional banks have been a bad laggard. In fact, they're barely up off their lows, even if they were slightly positive today. At the same time, that investors are still finding the ability to take some shelter in the biggest growth stocks. So I guess the question is how long that tension can continue. That's right, Mike. I mean, I think the stakes going into this earnings season for some of the biggest tech stocks couldn't have been higher, especially after the terrible, terrible year they had in 2022 and how much they've soared to kick off this year. I mean, it's really pretty remarkable how much some of these growth stocks have rallied. And what we're seeing is that investors are breathing a sign of sigh of relief. When it comes to some of these stocks, Microsoft, for example, just recorded its best post-earnings move since 2015, uh, which is pretty wild. Um, but that that's true. The big question now is, you know, can they lead the market higher, especially since all these other corners of the market are flashing recession signals, including, you know, First Republic, some of those regional banks, and especially since valuations in a lot of these stocks have expanded this year, I think a lot of investors are scratching their heads and saying, hey, how much can they keep leading the market higher after an already banner year they've had? Well, for sure. Uh, I do wonder, uh, Gunjan, just to what degree uh, investors having essentially anticipated uh, heightened recession risk for more than a year uh, have almost kind of locked into that mode of feeling as if it's inevitability. If you look at what stocks look inexpensive on valuation, it is mostly the cyclical stocks, not just financials, but other ones like that. So we're, we have this strange cycle here where the market went down when we still had peak earnings last year. 
uh, and the, the Fed was starting to, to raise interest rates, whereas usually stocks can continue to climb as the, as the Fed hikes. So uh, it's just very difficult to figure out if, in fact, this is the moment when those recession fears are all of a sudden going to be confirmed. So I think the first Republic news this week really did bring that front and center once again, uh, where I think a lot of investors thought, hey, maybe the banking crisis won't be as bad as we initially feared. Maybe, you know, that was contained to March and, and we're kind of past the brunt of it. And this was a reminder that we are not. And this is still going to keep rippling through markets. We still don't know how it's going to impact lending. And we still have these regional banks that are so not out of the woods yet. But I will point out that I think there's just a ton of mixed signals out there in markets where on the one hand, you have transportation stocks tumbling. Those are flashing a recession sign. Um, you know, trucking indicators are flashing red. But then when you look at the high yield bond market, for example, um, people are still holding on to some of the riskiest corporate debt out there. I think spreads have barely budged this year. And in fact, they've come down from their highs in March when Silicon Valley Bank initially collapsed. So I think there's just a number of mixed signals across the bond market and the stock market right now for investors to kind of wade through the next few weeks. Yeah, it is a good point on the, the, the public debt markets, Peter, in terms of the willingness for investors to accept relatively low compensation in terms of extra yield on some of the riskier corporate debt. Although when we talk about the risk of credit contraction coming out of the, the regional bank stress, it's probably not really uh, as analogous to the big companies that issue public debt, right? We're talking about a little more Main Street type lending out there. What would you be looking for to see uh, if, in fact, we're starting to manifest that in terms of credit having basically uh, being pulled out uh, of the economy? Yeah, th those were great points on credit. The two things that I'm watching are the triple C category of high yield, and the LSTA leverage loan index, specifically the leverage loan index, because those loans are floating rate. And we know a lot, everyone who has a floating rate loan has reset at a much higher price than just a year ago. And for those that have debt coming due every single month, somebody's debt is repricing at a much higher level than the loan that is maturing. So those, to me, are the two most important credit market indices uh, that I think would flash red uh, if there's a, a spreading of what's happened at the uh, at the bank level. And Peter, when it comes to the Fed, I mean, even at the last press conference, Jay Powell following uh, the March meeting did say that the committee considered pausing and not hiking rates again, mostly because of the potential implications of what had happened with the SVB. So we have a meeting next week. The consensus is another quarter point hike. Uh, and then perhaps a pause, or at least they go data dependent from that moment on. Uh, is that going to be enough to refresh the market's risk appetite, to have people feel as if the landing might not be so hard? Well, I, if you look at the Fed Fund's futures, we're already pricing in that after this hike next week, the market's going to take it back and then some by year end. And if you fast forward to the end of 2024, which I know is, is, is crystal ball watching, but the December 2024 Fed Funds futures contract is down to 320. So the market's expecting that after next week's hike, the Fed's going to cut 200 basis points over the next two years. So to me, that's sort of already priced in. So while I'm sure next Wednesday the market will rally, Powell says, yeah, we're going to pause, we're going to take a step back. But I, I think that's well expected at this point. It does seem well expected. And Gunjan, you know, 
Uh, investor behavior this year has been kind of fascinating because in January, there were a lot of people who were shaking their heads and, and scolding investors for going back into some of the riskiest stocks. That sometimes happens in a January and said, wow, this is all, only the junkiest stocks are rallying. You shouldn't really do that. And then since then, it's been some of the biggest, most profitable companies in the world supporting the indexes, right? We talk about Microsoft and Meta uh, after the close. So that's a different tone uh, right there because people are sort of being defensive and paying up for that protection. Uh, on the other hand, money f flowing hard into money market funds. So cash-like uh, instruments that give you some kind of a yield. So maybe that just means investors are confused or maybe they feel as if they're kind of uh, trying to prepare for potential bad things in the in the economy. You definitely have a lot of investors trying to prepare for, for things to get worse. And we're seeing that in the S&P 500 futures market where people have been incredibly bearish, ramping up bearish bets in recent weeks ahead of the Fed next week. But then I think there's also investors who are kind of in wait and see mode. You know, before before today, and at, at least as of, as of late April, we saw volumes across stocks fall to the lowest level since, you know, August 2021. So that tells you some people are really sitting on the sidelines, afraid to make big bets in either direction, whether it's on stocks going up, stocks going down, um, because so much kind of rests on that Fed meeting next week. And what we have seen throughout the year is investors have been caught flat-footed several times, whether it's, you know, betting on a Treasury rally or betting on Treasuries to sell off. And that's why we've seen some of those huge moves in that bond market. Yeah, good point. I know the most recent uh, weekly retail investor survey had more people saying they were neutral on stocks than either bullish or bearish. So I do think there is a, a pretty ambivalent attitude out there. Gunjan, Peter, thanks so much. Appreciate the time tonight. As we head to a break, uh, take a look at the after hours action in Meta. Shares on the move after the company reporting results. You see it up uh, almost 12 percent. Uh, we are just getting started on this CNBC special taking stock. Tonight, ring the register or run for the hills. Reactions to Meta's earnings report. Plus, go the extra mile. What Boeing can tell you about the travel cohort writ large. And the ABCs of buybacks in Silicon Valley, starting with Alphabet, when we return. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. 
Company retreated in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. Welcome back. Big news out of Disney today as the company filed a lawsuit against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Our own Julia Borston has the latest on that. Hey, Julia. Well, it is now officially a legal battle between Disney and the state of Florida, battling over management of Disney's tax district. This morning, an oversight board appointed by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis declared null and void the agreement Disney made in February to retain control over its theme park's tax district. Now, this prompted Disney to sue the governor for curtailing its rights, saying this was a clear violation of Disney's federal constitutional rights to retaliate against Disney for expressing its opposition to Florida's bill, which bans conversation about sexual orientation in schools. Now, DeSantis' office responded to this lawsuit by saying that it is unaware of any legal right a company has to operate its own government. So, Mike, it appears neither side is willing to back down. Certainly not yet, uh, for sure. Now, we are also watching Meta this evening elsewhere in media and tech. Those shares moving sharply higher following the company's earnings report. So, I mean, Julia, there were some relatively upbeat hopes going into this report. Clearly, they were surpassed by the details. What are some of the takeaways? Yeah, that's right. Meta really beating expectations across the board. And most importantly, Meta grew revenue by 3% rather than reporting the 1% decline that analysts were anticipating. This was the first quarter of year-over-year growth after three quarters of decline. So the company's earnings of $2.20 per share were also better than anticipated. And of course, that does come following cost cuts. The company also grew its user base faster than expected, even growing to 200 million daily active users in the saturated U.S.-Canada market. It also brought down the top end of its expense range for 2023. Now, on the earnings call, CEO Mark Zuckerberg stressed the upside of the company's investment in AI and the ongoing benefits from cost-cutting. Even as our financial position improves, (laughs) I continue to believe that slowing hiring, flattening our management structure, increasing the percent of our company that is technical, and more rigorously prioritizing projects will improve the speed and quality of our work. I also believe that a stronger financial position will enable us to weather a volatile environment. The company did warn that its losses in the Metaverse Reality Labs division would increase year over year, and Mark Zuckerberg stressed that Meta is not moving away from focusing on the Metaverse. He did say that near-term AI investments are connected to this longer-term metaverse play. Mike? Yes, so uh, continuing to look forward uh, at these kind of big-picture opportunities. At the same time, the expected expenses in total for the company for 2023, I think are $10 billion below where they were projecting just a few months ago, late, let's say, the third quarter of last year. So without a doubt, they seem like they're, uh, they, they set the bar pretty high on what they can do on margins and seem to be surpassing that. Yeah, making progress in all of these different metrics. I mean, it's interesting because they talked about having done all these layoffs. They've done two of these three major rounds of layoffs. They have one more coming up. But Zuckerberg and uh, CFO Susan Lee saying that once they get through that last round of layoffs, they feel like there's going to be a sense of stability at the company, and then they will start hiring strategically again. But a lot of optimism that this slimmed-down, more efficient company will be better equipped to tackle some of these big issues. And I think it was really interesting to hear how he talked about the financial opportunity in AI near term and yet also how long term those AI investments 
will pay off with this metaverse play. Yeah, and that's certainly a message uh, the street's interested in hearing uh, at the moment anyway. Julia, thank you very much. For more, let's bring in Elevation Partners founder Roger McNamee, who was an early investor in Facebook. Uh, Roger, it's good to see you. Uh, it seems like uh, the company is sort of embarking on its next act, uh, I guess, uh, in terms of, you know, being more disciplined about cost, attacking longer term opportunities, but also, I guess, protecting uh, advertising market share in the near term. What's your uh, assessment of it? Well, the 3 percent increase in revenue was a really big deal, in my opinion, because as the company has admitted, the core market of North America is fully saturated. So getting gains there is a hard thing. But Meta has a unique advertising product. And as a consequence, if you're an advertiser trying to boost sales at the margin, this is the place they're going to go. And the company did a terrific job this quarter taking advantage of that. To me, the key thing for investors to pay attention to are the longer term challenges facing Meta. Obviously, the core business of Facebook is saturated in the key markets. Instagram is up against huge competitive threats from TikTok. And it's not just Apple going after the ad market, but the European regulators are beginning to make inroads there. And those are going to be headwinds that they're going to have to fight. And now, lastly, they are spending huge amounts of money on the metaverse. And candidly, at this point, I think it's really hard to make the case that that is money well spent. I do think the strategy is misguided. And from an investor point of view, the sooner they wake up to that and end that investment, the better off they'll be. Are they not redefining what the strategy is or maybe you can kind of shift along the way? I mean, what exactly is being built uh, at this point, is it is it even well conceived? And if they're now recasting it as part of general, you know, incorporating AI technologies into it, maybe the street has more tolerance for that. Well, that may well prove to be true. But the reality of it is that I've made a general purpose virtual reality system mm -hmm. in a marketplace which is really looking for specific use cases that really excite people. The most successful tech products are not ones that boil the ocean. They're ones that do one thing really, really well. And there really is no lead product using the metaverse technology. And I think the other thing investors really need to watch out for, the company has reduced its headcount by 30%. The effect of that on morale, the effect of that on productivity, you know, it's going to be a mixed bag. Obviously, it reduces costs dramatically in the short run. But this is not a factory. This is a company dependent on engineers doing their best work. So if you undermine morale in a structural way, it may be super hard to recover from that. And I think that's a thing investors need to pay attention to. I think the next couple quarters are going to continue to be strong. But I do think the longer term issues are really disturbing and should put a lid on the value that people put on this company. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, people are certainly captivated with just the profitability picture right now and the idea that they're not spending in a in a willy nilly way on AI, Roger, more broadly. Um, it feels as if I mean, really, in a matter of months, it's become priority number one for all these huge companies, at least they're saying so. Uh, huge amounts of investment. NVIDIA stocks flying because people can't buy enough or pay enough for their uh, their chips uh, that, that help them out with this. How are we to think about it in business terms, in societal terms? Is it not just more, hey, software always gets better, smarter, and faster? Well, Mike, I think the real issue with AI today is that it's 99% hype for everybody but NVIDIA. It takes roughly half a billion dollars worth of investment in NVIDIA product just to create one of these large language model AI systems. And so NVIDIA is getting paid by everybody. And 
In this environment of rapid change, where interest rates are higher, inflation is higher, where there's global unrest that makes supply chain, really have to change your supply chains to adapt to what's going on globally, those are all headwinds for technology. And AI is the big hope everybody has for sliding through that. And I think ChatGPT and the OpenAI folks have done a masterful job of building the hype around this with a product that is fundamentally the software equivalent of a Juul vape pen with a fruit flavoring. You know, it's a product that I think has really huge structural costs and problems, but wrapped in a flavor package that makes it attractive to people. And, you know, from where I sit, the AI thing is hopelessly overblown. And the people who are worried about the long term, we're talking about AI overlords, are missing the real problem, which is the bias that is inherent in, you know, the the AI-based policing systems, AI-based mortgage review and resume review and the flaws that are in the large language model products like GPT-4, where they've just essentially trained it on garbage and expect great outcomes to come out of it, which never works. AI could be such a wonderful thing. And in areas like drug discovery, I think it really will be. And I am hopeful that we'll see people investing in the right kind of training data sets to make the potential of AI as good as the hype has been so far. Yeah, well, we do hope that uh, that is how it plays out, whether it's by, you know, uh, sort of market discipline favoring the better product or uh, or some kind of guardrails. And maybe Alphabet has it right going slower and trying to get it right. Uh, Roger, good to speak with you. Thanks so much. Mike, thanks. It's always a pleasure to see you, my friend. All right. Up next. Earnings season so far shedding some light on the state of spending. Hilton falling 5% after its report, despite reporting a beaten raise and signaling strength in consumer spending on travel. As pockets of weakness begin to emerge across the travel industry, what it means for the state of the consumer. That's next. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Welcome back. Travel earnings season has kicked off with reports from Hilton and Travel and Leisure showing demand remaining relatively robust, but investors still concerned that softer pricing could impact margins. So where does that leave the space? Let's get to our own Seema Modi for more on that. Hi, Seema. Hey, Mike. Well, concerns of inflation slowing down the travel story were dismissed after Hilton raised its outlook for the year and reported a 30% increase in revenue per available room. That's the industry metric used, really driven by higher prices. I think there's a tremendous amount of upside potential in international travel over the next six to 24 months. Bottom line, Americans are still willing to pay up for a vacation, especially when it comes to international travel. That's what's fueling visas numbers, which saw cross-border volume rise 24% in the quarter versus the prior year. General Electric also seeing the benefits. CEO Larry Culp telling me the recovery in travel is fueling the company's jet engine business with aerospace organic sales in the first quarter up 25% compared to the year prior. Culp is betting that China departures will get back to 2019 levels this year. Now, as China's economy opens up, the industry data from STR shows hotel revenue has also improved dramatically, down 41% in the first fourth quarter versus down 12% in the first quarter. Results now from Marriott, Expedia, Booking holding, Holdings next week will give us a better read on just if the industry can get a can really bet on a rebound, not just on the U.S. consumer, but the Chinese consumer as well, Mike. Yeah, and Seema, we're going to hear from a couple airlines tomorrow, so maybe we'll get a bit more color on that as well. I guess the question, as the market sort of tries to sort out whether this pricing power can continue on the lodging side of things, you did see, as we mentioned, Hilton shares pulling back. Are they talking about raising rates further from here or just kind of holding the line this year? Well, even though the commentary from the travel CEOs like Hilton is so strong, I think there's still a lot of concern about what lies ahead over the next two to four months. Do we enter a recession or not? And if so, how much do prices need to fall? Last time I spoke to Marriott CEO Tony Capuano, he said they're expecting prices to moderate in the second half of this year. So come June, July, do we actually see prices come down by 5 to 10 percent? We will just have to see. Now, at the same time, I would point your attention, Mike, to some of the weekly hotel occupancy data that we view. And there you'll see that average daily rates have actually been falling over the last four weeks, not in a significant manner, but still noteworthy as we try to understand where prices go from here. For sure. And how that could impact margins. Keep track uh, of it, as well as the international side, uh, as you mentioned, Seema. Thank you very much. Well, a key component to the travel equation, Boeing, planning to increase its production of 737 MAX planes to meet the rebound in travel demand. So could this be the beginning of that turnaround Boeing shareholders have been waiting for? Let's bring in Sheila, Sheila Kayalu, uh, Jeffrey's aerospace and defense analyst. Sheila, it's great to see you. So um, where do we sit after Boeing's report today in terms of the pace of deliveries on the 737? Is it enough to, to kind of satisfy uh, investor expectations for now? Thanks so much, Mike, for having me. Um, Boeing's report was a bit of a relief rally for Boeing and Spear Airspace Systems, given that Boeing held the line on its max production uh, delivery assumption of 400 to 450 maxes, which will help fuel uh, domestic travel, uh, with a lot of the U.S. network carriers uh, taking about 50 percent of that output. So that was a little bit of a relief rally, given the 737 max delivery pause we've seen across most of the models except for the Dash 9 uh, that was implemented about two weeks ago. So we weren't sure if they would be able to continue uh, their output, but they're saying they have a fix in place. Uh, The rework is only a matter of a 
few hours slash days, depending on what type of aircraft it is, and they could still deliver on their target starting in the second half with Q2 still a slow output output quarter. And then what about, um, I guess, the, the rest of, uh, of either the product set or the geographic uh, kind of pool of demand out there? It seems like a, f- a few things have to start kicking in to get the free cash flow story uh, underway. Yeah, you're exactly right, Mike. So Boeing uh, had an outflow of about $800 million of free cash flow in the first quarter with main- its guidance maintained of 3 to $5 billion. But of course, we're assuming the low end of that is more likely given the risks around their max deliveries of 400 to 450. And they also were forecasting 787s, which are the wide body uh, platform or the majority of the wide body demand. Uh, that is 70 to 80 aircraft. And we've seen about um, under 20 delivered year to date. So uh, we we have a big ramp to go in the second half to meet Boeing's free cash flow guidance, um, but they're still maintaining it. And in fact, what they did, they almost doubled down on Um, their belief that this will work out because they did say that they are raising max production. We think max production is around 31, 35 today. They made it official. They said they're going to go to 38 um, at the end of this year. And on the 787, they said now they're officially at three um, per month. And they haven't really said that, that they're going to five and they are um, reinforcing their output target of 10 per month by 2025 and 50 on the 737. Um, so that was a positive. And from the reports we've seen so far, whether it's General Electric or Raytheon Technologies or Hexcel, um, these numbers have been supportive. Uh, we are seeing that commercial aerospace revenue come through for those suppliers, too. And so presumably reaffirming that expectation by the company means that they don't think it's particularly sensitive to any wobble in, in global economic growth or we just have to wait and see. I don't think they do. We just can't get planes fast enough, to be honest. Um, The current production rates, if we think global air traffic um, internationally meets 2019 levels by the end of this year, which is a one-year pull forward or one-and-a-half-year pull forward versus our forecast, we need many more planes. So we are forecasting narrow-body output across Boeing and Airbus was 1,000 units in 2022, going up to 1,500 by 2025. And that only assumes 4% air traffic growth versus last cycle was 6%. So um, we are already assuming sort of a soft landing in our output numbers. And that means Boeing gets to 50, Airbus gets to 75 on the, per month on their narrow body. So recession or not, we're seeing output increase. It's a matter of who could get the margins and have no supply chain hiccups while they're basically doubling rates. Got it. And uh, your price target 250. So that's roughly 20% upside from here for Boeing. Yeah, and beyond 2025, 26, we continue to see more upside for Boeing because keep in mind the aircraft that they're delivering now on the MAX and the 787, that has a lot of concessions associated with it um, because of the grounding of the MAX. So they are still working through about 200 aircraft in inventory for the MAX and about 100 for the 787. So as those are delivered, we see the profit profile and free cash flow profile per aircraft doubling on both the 3.7 and the 8.7. So that $10 billion number we think is a base case uh, that could increase to $15 billion plus in 2026-27. All right. Got it, Sheila. Thanks so much. Good to talk to you. Thank you. All right. As we head to a break, take a look at Chipotle. Shares of the burrito chain surging to an all-time high after beating on earnings and revenue for the quarter. The restaurant chain also reporting growth in traffic, all while having increased prices 10% compared to a year earlier. That's stuck up nearly 13%. Don't go anywhere. There's much more ahead on this CNBC special, Taking Stock. 
After the break, what pops up when you Google monster buyback? A deep dive into Alphabet's major announcement. Plus, tech on deck. A look at what's to come midway through a big earnings week out west when we return. Welcome back. Corporate stock buyback announcements are running near a record pace so far this year, even after the S&P 500 companies repurchased nearly a trillion dollars of their own shares in 2022. Alphabet just this week unveiled a new $70 billion buyback authorization. Yet buybacks are no automatic boost to stock prices for the companies that execute them. Take a look at the PKW. That's an ETF uh, that tracks the buyback achievers. These are companies with a, a continuing demonstrated tendency to buy back a lot of their own shares. Over five years, it's actually slightly underperformed the S&P 500. That's also true for longer time periods. So uh, there's obviously more to it than simply companies going out repurchasing their own stock and automatically having them uh, rise. But let's talk more about the recent buybacks, what they might mean for the broader market. Joining us now is Jake Dollarhide, CEO of Longbow Asset Management. Jake, uh, it's good to see you here. So how, how do you tend to think about buybacks, not just with regard to the companies that do them, but just in general in the market? No matter what happens to the individual stocks, that cash does end up back in investors' hands. Oh, absolutely. You know, a company has four choices of what to do with their cash. They can invest it organically. They can make M&A activity. Uh, they can pay a dividend or they can buy back stock. Warren Buffett's a huge fan of this. And it means that all remaining shares are that much more valuable, all things being equal. Absolutely. And he certainly benefited from it in a huge way by having his own stake in Apple go up all the time, even without buying a new share, because Apple's buying back stock from everybody else. Um, the, the other piece of it is that you can have a buyback authorization, uh, but the company has its own discretion as to whether it does go, whether it goes through with it. Goldman Sachs this week was suggesting that the actual execution of buybacks this year have been running well below last year's pace, even though companies are authorized to buy more. So I wonder if that just means that companies are being more cautious with their cash uh, and maybe that's not going to be a bigger source of demand right in the here and now for stocks. No, I think when you're coming off a year, the Nasdaq's down nearly 40 percent. I think tech companies being uh, conservative is is understandable. Uh, two, when we take a long position in a tech stock ourselves, we might buy at 40 and then average dollar cost average down at 30, 20, 15. Uh, most of our biggest winners, the stock was down 60 or 70 percent uh, at the lowest point, only to come back and make you know really good really good returns. So I wouldn't be surprised at all. They don't they 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 saw what happened to Meta in October. Um, it, it was an $88 stock, and they were embarrassed by the fact that they had bought at $330 in 2021 and $210 in 2022. And so they got a lot of criticism, and the other tech giants want to avoid that same reaction. Sure. Now, there's certainly a, a school of thought that says that uh, initiating or raising a dividend might be the better signal by management to say, look, we believe the profitability is going to be there for a long period of time. It's going to be cash in investors' hands, whether it's, you know, some people don't like the tax implications of that. Uh, do you feel it's relevant how a company returns cash to you? I don't, except I think paying a dividend does tie your hands a little bit. It does maybe sig send the wrong signal to the tech crowd that maybe you've matured. Uh, I think Microsoft obviously 
started paying a dividend with Windows, uh, but then reinvented itself through video games. Mm -hmm. uh, look at Disney, who cut their dividend during the pandemic and now is being pressured to raise it or to reinitiate it again uh, under Bob Iger. And so I think Google still is a, a growth company. Um, uh, Meta is still a growth company, and they will be for the, the next five to 10 years. I don't look for them to, to, to start a dividend anytime soon. Yeah, um, exactly. And some would say that that's a signal of, uh, you know, certainly mature uh, companies, slowing growth, something like that as well. Uh, the other piece of the equation is whether the buybacks are just going to offset stock-based compensation that goes to employees. Uh, that's a big complaint that people kind of use shareholder cash to buy back stock that's really not reducing the share count, not really raising your stake in the company. Is that something that you'd be mindful of in terms of which companies uh, are, are being a little bit more generous versus less? Oh, I, I think so. I, I think it's good for employee morale. It's good for, you know, if, if your workers aren't happy, uh, you know, you're going to have some issues at the end of the day. Uh, and, and I think let's think about why Alphabet is doing this. They've been a very successful company in their 25 year history. And for 19 years being a public traded company, this is an $85 IPO. Yeah. Uh, that's got 2,300%. If it wasn't for the 20 to 1 split in August, this would be a $2,100 stock. So they've been very successful for 25 years. The question is, Will they be successful for the next 25? Yeah, and certainly they don't need uh, that cash to, to run the business because it is so uh, such a good one and so profitable. Although people say Apple is the one that does it right. They, they reduce the share count. They, they do it out of free cash flow, and they also uh, do have a dividend. So maybe there's enough to go around for everybody. Exactly. Uh, and Apple's, Apple is the, had the most buybacks last year, $90 billion, And, yeah. of course, Alphabet was second, $70 billion. All right. Uh, Jake, great to catch up with you on this. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. All right. Coming up. The Nasdaq moving higher today after big tech results, including Microsoft. That stock also moving higher, having its best day since November. We'll find out what the move signals for the rest of tech as this big week of earnings rolls on. Stay with us. Welcome back. Let's take another look at how the markets ended the day. The Dow dropping nearly 230 points. That was despite a positive 130-point contribution from Microsoft. The S&P closing down four-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq, the only major index to close with gains. Uh, that was almost all due to Microsoft, but still well off its highs for the day. Take a look, too, at the outperformance we've seen so far this year from the XLG. This is the ETF that contains the largest 50 companies in the S&P 500, and then compared to the smallest companies in the market, IWC's microcap stocks, uh, very stark difference. And it separates right at that point when uh, Silicon Valley Bank failed and created all those regional bank worries. Meanwhile, those concerns about regional banks and First Republic in particular, as well as the strength of the banking sector outweighing uh, strength in the tech sector on a net basis today. First Republic shares continuing to get hammered. FRC now down 60 percent since reporting earnings that's just on Monday. Our own Brian Sullivan has been following the First Republic story closely, joins us now. And, and Brian, I mean, the market's trying to figure out if it's allowed to kind of set FRC aside as this sort of singular problem uh, that doesn't necessarily have contagion effects, but also it's a complete moving target as to whether it, it lasts. I think the contagion is twofold. The contagion risk on other banks, I think that's probably in the clear, I'm guessing. I mean, of course, we thought First Republic might be in the clear when the government came out and, you know, basically rescued everybody a month ago. We found out that's not true. I think the bigger contagion risk 
is the macro economy, Mike. We yeah. talk about getting a mortgage loan, getting a car loan, getting a small business loan. This is going to tighten. Everything I'm reading yeah. is, says this is going to tighten credit up for everybody. Even if you don't care about First Republic Bank, right. you might find yourself a victim of some of those tight credit conditions. If you're a bank CEO, you have every incentive to reduce risk, hold on to cash, call in loans, not extend further credit. So that's absolutely that's right. true. That's what we got to worry about is the, the psychology uh, of the chain reaction. Uh, solar stocks, end phase today. Very mm. interesting move. Uh, what's really going on uh, in that particular company, what it had to say, and then just the overall industry? Yeah, we're doing this a lot tonight in last call. It's in about seven minutes, yep. by the way. I got to get over there. Tune in. Yep. Uh, Pippa covered this great all day. End phase is a trader favorite. Basically, they make these inverters for solar panels that convert to a battery, blah, 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 blah. Couple things. They got crushed today. Here's why we got to care. Number one is you've got higher interest rates impacting this company because remember, you're slapping a $30,000 solar module on your roof. Yep. You're probably borrowing that money. Also, California changing these net metering rules. If you produ- if the Santoli family produces more energy than you need, you can sell it back to the grid. California changed the rules. Hard to believe. They're saying buy solar, right. but let's make it less 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 uh, you know affordable to do so, and how much money you can make by selling it back in. They actually contracted their sales in the United States. Mm-hmm. Europe is doing well. It's an industry we hear, Mike. Everybody's like, we got to go solar, we got to go solar, right. got to go wind. And yet higher rates and more regulation may, may damage that. It does maybe show exactly how slim that sort of payback margin is if you do decide to go solar, right? I mean, it can swing from, yeah, this is going to pay off relatively soon if I install yeah. one of these. There's, there's also, not. yeah, and, and I don't want to get wonky. We'll talk about it more in a few minutes. Last call, tune in, which is there's a battery pack, basically a battery pack requirement. These batteries are ten to $15,000. Yeah. If you're some guy that's just trying to sell solar on the side, you go to the Santoli family, pretty soon you're talking forty five, fifty five, sixty thousand dollars $60,000. Interest rates are up. Yeah. You're like, eh, you want to do the right right thing for the for the environment, but not sixty grand worth. No, at least not uh, not at the moment. Brian, yeah. thanks a lot. Sure. We'll see you in a few minutes. All right. Thanks very much. Last call coming up at 7. Still coming up in this hour, tech on deck, a look at what's to come midway through a big earnings week out west. Welcome back. Microsoft playing a big part in today's boost for the Nasdaq. The stock up 7% today after beating on earnings yesterday. The company also shrugging off U.K. regulators who announced they would be blocking the deal between Microsoft and Activision Blizzard. Activision, meanwhile, lower on that deal news and on its own results. Steve Kovac joins us now with more on all of these things uh, driving Microsoft, Steve. Yeah, and this says it all, Mike. Microsoft shares soaring after that strong earnings report and barely budging when we got the news. The Activision deal is nearly dead. UK's Competition Markets Authority rejecting that deal flat out. Microsoft President Brad Smith promising to appeal the decision, but the CMA rarely caves in these cases. Meanwhile, Activision CEO Bobby Kotick supporting Microsoft's appeal effort, but sounds like reality is setting in. Kotick telling Activision employees in a memo this morning the company can continue to grow with or without Microsoft. 
And if, if and when the deal formally dies, Microsoft will have to pay a $3 billion break fee to Activision. Microsoft still has plenty of cash to play with, though. And while we're talking about big tech, let's look ahead to Amazon, which is rounding out the mega cap reports for the week tomorrow after the bell. On the cloud front, similar story that we saw from Microsoft yesterday. Analysts, analysts expecting strong but decelerating growth there for the market leader, AWS. And on the e-commerce side, well, we heard from Andy Jassy just two weeks ago. Customers are trading down and looking for deals. We'll see how that plays out in the results, along with mass layoffs and all those cost cuts, Mike. Yeah, it seems like investors are now geared to see upside surprises, right? We yeah. got Meta. We Look got at Meta Microsoft. today, 12%. Uh, so it seems like, I mean, Amazon, it's been kind of the laggard. Yeah, and it was, it's was it been the laggard even in 2021 when yeah. these stocks were just screaming. It was still the laggard. So we'll see how it turns out tomorrow. Yeah, people seem to think that the uh, the cloud economy is still intact. Yeah, That's and story. AI, of course, plays into that. Yes, I'm sure we're going to hear about it. Steve, thanks Thank very you. much. All right, let's take a look at what to watch as we round out the week and the month of April. Tomorrow's first quarter GDP report will be a key data point for the Fed and investors. Uh, You see the estimate is coming in around 2% real GDP growth. That's a tick down from 2.6 in the prior quarter. Then we'll get key data on consumer inflation on Friday. That's the core PCE index expected to increase 4.5% year over year. That's about even with last month's increase of 4.6% could actually really affect the Fed outlook. The last day of the week is also the last trading day of the month. We'll be watching for any portfolio reshuffling the Dow, looking about flat for the month. If it ends positive, would mark its second up month in a row. Meanwhile, uh, the NASDAQ is currently down 3% on pace for its worst monthly performance since December 2022. Another note, the broad stock market is negative. The bond market is higher sometimes at the end of the month. People want to reallocate. It could mean uh, out of bonds and into stocks for some asset allocators. That's going to do it now for us. Last call starts right now. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 